Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello and welcome to Brexit Unspun. This is where we debunk the political spin around Brexit. I'm Shona Jenkins. Today, we're looking at scientific research and the industries that depend on it. How will Brexit affect these? And does Britain risk becoming a backwater for scientific research, as some scientists have warned? I'm joined by Clive Cookson, science editor, and Helen Worrell, public policy correspondent, to discuss these questions. First of all, Clive, the government has promised that Britain's world-class status in scientific research won't be harmed by Brexit. But is this realistic? Well, there are two main ways in which scientists and researchers fear they might be harmed. One is financially, because the EU contributes roughly a billion euros a year to UK research, mainly from a research programme called Horizon 2020, which gives out grants to academics, small companies and so on. But there are also the European regional development funds, which play a role, particularly in north of England, Wales and Scotland. Now, that harm could be made up by spending more UK money on research, and all political parties are in favour of that. And last year, the government said they'd be spending an extra two billion a year by 2020. So financially, yes, the harm can be mitigated. But the other damage, which will be harder to avoid, is the loss of international contacts and collaboration and the open movement of researchers across Europe. And it remains to be seen how that can be mitigated. So what are the main programmes that depend most on close cooperation with the EU? Well, there's a huge variety of sort of academic grants to universities from the EU's research programme, which is called Horizon 2020, and that'll be followed by something called Framework 9. And the subjects that are most dependent on EU funding are in the arts and humanities social sciences. And there was a study that showed that archaeology was the most vulnerable because it gets 38% of its grants from EU resources. In absolute terms, the sort of big sciences like IT, medicine and so on will get more. But there are also quite a lot of small and medium-sized companies that depend on EU funding for their research. Big companies less so. So how will this affect associated industries like aerospace and pharmaceuticals that depend on cutting-edge research? Those big two science-based industries in which the UK is so strong, aerospace and pharmaceuticals, are less dependent on direct funding from EU research programmes, but they depend on the EU in other ways. Pharmaceuticals and medicine depend on the European Medicines Agency, which is responsible for the whole regulatory framework and whose headquarters are in London, employing several hundred people. That is almost certain to go with Brexit. That'll harm the pharmaceutical companies. It'll be less in the interest of drug companies to have headquarters in London. 
The aerospace industry is worried because the EU is becoming active in space. There's the Galileo satellite navigation system. There's Copernicus, which is observing Earth from space. Both of those work through the European Space Agency. And there are already signs that British space contractor satellite companies are being shut out of contracts there. So those are two examples. Scientists have been lobbying the government to ensure that collaboration with EU colleagues continues. But is this possible after Brexit? I think so, yes. Looking at it on the brighter side, it might be possible to extend free movement to non-EU countries, to the Indian subcontinent, Australasia, North America. But certainly the aim of the um, academic world is to have as free a movement of students, post-grads, post-docs and academics as possible. So Helen, what do you think? Are we looking at a Brexit brain drain? How dependent are UK universities on academic staff from EU countries? Well, this is certainly something that universities in the UK are extremely concerned about and EU workers make up 16% of the UK academic workforce at the moment. Earlier this year, Parliament's Education Committee warned very strongly of a potential exodus of EU staff and quoted a survey showing that three quarters of this group were thought to be much more likely to leave their jobs as a result of Brexit. And although this pain is being shared potentially across all universities, Cambridge in particular has warned that because the UK actually receives many more academic researchers than it sends overseas, at the moment Britain has a major competitive advantage and the university is obviously very worried that this could be lost unless specific new routes are brought in through the immigration system for the higher education sector after Brexit. Now, I absolutely take Clive's point that there are lots of people who I think are very hopeful that after Brexit, the restrictions on EU migrants will mean some laxity on non-EU migrants. But I'm afraid what I've heard from the Home Office suggests that this is not likely to be the case in her manifesto Theresa May controversially decided to restate her tens of thousands immigration target, which means that she's got to bring the numbers down by more than half. And the result of this means that actually it's likely that the government will seek to just cut the numbers of people coming into this country by whatever means they can. So is there any upside for British universities to Brexit? Well, it's a very interesting question because there are definitely some potential opportunities. Birmingham announced earlier this year that it's opening a branch of its campus in Dubai. UCL already has a big campus in Qatar. There was a time when actually a lot of UK universities were doing these sorts of expansions, but past experience has shown that it's actually very difficult to make money doing this because of the startup costs and because of the practicalities of staffing these overseas campuses. And actually, I think maybe a more interesting opportunity that lies ahead is that universities will try to harness the power of technology to educate students remotely. And Exeter, which is one of the 
elite Russell Group universities has just announced that it's going to offer a whole range of online postgraduate degrees in subjects like finance and management, which will be available to overseas students. And the big advantage, obviously, is that they won't have to go through any visa rules. They won't have to have any contact with the immigration system because they can do all of this learning from wherever else they are in the world. Can I just mention another factor, which is both a negative and a positive? And that's the big fall in sterling that followed the referendum result and may continue this year as the Brexit negotiations continue. The fall in the pound is bad news for universities and research organisations if they want to employ senior researchers from abroad. And they're already losing people, I'm told. People who are not only worried about the loss of European research funding, but also worried that their salaries and pounds aren't going to be worth as much as they were. On the other hand, if universities are recruiting students, say postgraduate students who are paying fees, those fees fixed in sterling are going to be more affordable for people elsewhere in the world. So there are some swings and roundabouts there. Yeah, I mean, Clive's absolutely right. The Oxford Migration Observatory has done a very good study showing that actually students are incredibly sensitive to these changes in currency value. And actually, the fall in sterling is potentially a huge competitive advantage for the UK compared to other overseas providers in, say, Canada or the US. So lots to think about there. Thanks, Clive and Helen, and thank you for listening. We'll be back next week for another unvarnished look at what Brexit will mean for Britain's trade, economy, public institutions and private sector. We hope you'll join us then. And in the meantime, you can review or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher or wherever you download. You can also email us at brexitunspun, that's all one word, at ft.com if you have questions or would like to suggest a topic for future episodes. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.